0: if you imagine that this person that's next to you needs just as much pursuing as they needed in the beginning, that instead of thinking that you can take them for granted now because they're married to you, in fact, you need even more creativity to engage them because they're married to you.
1: Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and sex in all forms, We're your hosts Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a
2: world-renowned Belgian psychotherapist who specializes in couples therapy and who is known for her ideas on the balance between secure love and the need for freedom and adventure in relationships. She has conducted several TED Talks, including The Secret to Desire in Long-Term Relationships and Rethinking Infidelity, a talk for anyone who has ever loved, which have received over 21 million views on TED's website. She has written the best-selling book, Mating in Captivity, translated into 24 languages, discussing the often contradictory nature between domesticity and sexual desire and what it takes to keep lust alive. Most recently, she released her book, The State of Affairs Rethinking Infidelity, in which she explores cheating and offers fresh and at times controversial perspectives on the topic. She's on season two of her innovative podcast, Where Should We Begin?, in which listeners join her to speak with couples, helping them to explore issues and heal the wounds that impact us all in, in relationships. Our guest has become the go-to speaker on sexuality and relationships and has become one of the most famous therapists of our time. It's hard to imagine what she hasn't accomplished. We are so incredibly honored to welcome Esther Perel today on Lovelink. Welcome, Esther.
1: Welcome. Thanks for coming. So you've become the expert on how couples can maintain intimacy in long-term relationships. Um, And I'm curious... What prompted your interest in this topic? Um, you know, what experiences in your own life had led you to explore intimacy and in relationships? So
0: interesting because every time i hear that i'm supposed to be the expert i think i want to say i'm a student i'm experiencing the same things i think that none of us have an answer for this because we are actually in a grand experiment of the humankind which is this idea that we can reconcile commitment and freedom love and desire passion and stability in one relationship and um this has never been attempted to before. So who, no one can claim oneself an expert on that. But the reason I began it is because um, I had always learned that sexual problems are the consequence of relationship problems. And therefore, you fix the relationship, you work on the intimacy, the communication, the complicity, the problem solving. And if the relationship improves, the sex will follow. And for some ca- people, that was indeed the case. But so often, That did not happen. I saw people who kept coming in and say to me, we love each other very much. We have a great marriage, a great relationship. We have no sex. And fixing the relationship did not change the dynamic. Sexuality wasn't just a metaphor of the relationship. It was a parallel narrative. And it required that we study it for its own sake. But in fact, if I managed to improve the sexuality in a couple, that erotic intimacy had reverberations on any other aspect of the couple's life. It actually worked the other way around. And I just began to dismantle it. I said, this, doesn't, this, this sounds good, but it isn't necessarily the only version. And that version is going to stay, but we need to open up a whole other range. People would come in the whole generation contraception in their hand, the permission to do what they want, premarital sex as a given, desire as the central organizing feature of committed sexuality. After two kids, there's no other reason than pleasure and connection. And they don't want to, and they don't know why. And they want to want. And that began this whole in-depth study of the concept of desire, and particularly erotic desire, not what people do sexually. I don't care if people have sex once a week, twice a week. It's irrelevant. People have done sex for centuries, women in particular, and felt nothing. Doing it is not the point. This is not about achievement. But what happens that makes a couple feel alive, that introduces the erotic in their relationship? Not sex, eroticism. And that's when I'm bifurcated a second time from the focus on desire to... To f- and the focus on sex to the focus on eroticism. So, you
2: know, I think your work really, s- the popularity speaks to how hungry people are for what you're giving them. And... I'm curious whether you think this is really kind of specific to our time, that people are drawn to your work because this is something that's emerging as a problem that's you know, either generational or developmental to our era, or if, there's, if this has just been around for so long and people have always questioned this and just don't know how no, to grapple with I this. I think
0: it's more and more. And I think that's part of why the younger and younger people continue to listen. That's the big surprise is that I don't speak to boomers only. I speak to, and the reason I think for that is that, you know, if you look at relationships, not too long ago they were quite clear. People knew who they were. People knew what they should be doing. Parents knew how to talk to kids. Kids knew how to talk to adults. Husbands knew what to say to wives. Wives knew what not to say to husbands. Everything was fairly structured. There was religion. There was incentives and prohibitions. There was social hierarchy. And we only made small decisions. You knew what you were going to do, and you knew where you were going to live, and you knew what you... The whole thing was set up. Everything at this moment has to be decided by you. In our consumer individualistic world, where we pursue happiness, the big decisions are in your hand. How many people do you want to date? How many, what the gender is of the people you want to date? Not will you have children? That already. But when would you like to have children? How many children do you? Are you ready to have children? Are you living here? Are you living there? Is that really what you want to do? Are you happy? Are you happy enough? And all of this is only resolved through one thing, conversation and negotiation. And relationships, from being a thing that was rather set, has become one of the most puzzling, uncertain, self-doubt-imposing aspects of our lives Everything else has become almost easier than managing relationships. And so what there is is a hunger for guides, for people who help us manage the complexities of modern relationships. You know, what does it mean to find a person and the one and the one when it's through an app? You know, I met the founder of Tinder yesterday. That was an interesting chat. <laughs> you know, I spent two hours like. Ugh. What did you learn? <laughs> a lot. I mean, what, you know, what I learned primarily is that, that the way people think about games, you know, that the point was, he, you know, we're going to create something that creates connection and avoids rejection. And I try to tell him that that's that's not necessarily such a great thing. Because managing rejection is actually a part of how you learn to become a better seducer and a better a partner and a, you know you need this iterative experience of trying and not succeeding and once you've removed all the obstacles you've removed the excitement so i said think of this way one of the most powerful erotic equations which comes from jack morin says attraction plus obstacle equals excitement that is the definition of romance so how do we create more obstacles in our relationships
1: uh-huh.
0: I th- actually the interesting thing is you don't you know, you can't create it artificially. You don't pretend. And, but what is interesting is, the, is what Mitchell calls the contrived illusion of safety. You pretend there are no obstacles anymore. You pretend that if you just approach your partner at 11 o'clock at night after finishing all the chores and you scratch their back twice like that, that should be enough of a cue. And if you just say, shall we do it or do you want to fool around, that that's actually an erotic energy. And you realize that instead of doing all what you used to do before, you do none of it. You really think that it's a straight line and then you're surprised that there is zero interest and zero energy. You know, if you're going to go to do a sport, you have to get your gear, you have to get your clothes, you have to reserve the thing, you have to organize the place, you have to organize who's going to go with you. There's an entire ritual When you look at what the majority of people do in their domestic relationships around sexuality, the ritual of the pursuit of the preliminary, of the foreplay, what we call, but foreplay has become such a problematic term, it's completely gone. The room is a mess. It's like there is zero poetry. On what basis do you think somebody would become interested? So it's the illusion that you don't have the obstacle that actually trips us. If you imagine that this person that's next to you needs just as much pursuing as they needed in the beginning, that instead of thinking that you can take them for granted now because they're married to you, in fact, you need even more creativity to engage them because they're married to you.
2: Switch it around. Which I think also just goes against the fiber of our very, like, very culture. Yeah, yeah. We, I did we, all of the work
0: before. You yeah. I'm done with this. Now exactly.
2: And that we tend to be
0: very complacent. In fact, you really have to put in a lot of work. Erotic couples are creative about that. They, they don't think of it as work. They find that fun. They play. They seduce. They don't assume that because you're with me, it's a given. You're going to want to sleep with me. And they maintain that. It's very clear what they do. And sometimes they do it, you know, in codes. They go to dance. They dress up. They prepare a bath. They they clean up the room. They set up the candles. They they signal each other. They, They write texts in the morning. They begin to notify that, you know, tonight we'll spend some time together. They cultivate. This energy. They make it sexy. Yeah. And what makes some couples
2: able to do this and other couples h- have a harder time keeping that alive? That playfulness? I think the
0: first thing is one's own comfort with the subject of sex. If you think that this fantasy of it just takes me over, it overcomes me, it grabs me, and I have to do nothing. In some way, it is also a way to elude the responsibility of owning one's wanting, which is the definition of desire. You know, when you actively pursue, you have to say, I want this thing. This thing is a good thing. It's I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. I want to share it with you. It feels good. You need a healthy attitude to the idea of sex, in some way, the idea of sex that grabs you, eludes you to have to own it. I don't know if I'm explaining this well. It it bypasses. you having to be able to say, I want this thing, rather than, it just crept up on me. That it thing that I couldn't resist is a fantasy that in some way makes people not to have to consciously, intentionally own sex and sex in a committed relationship is premeditated but premeditated sex in the context of a family we find very disturbing because that is not the place where one should be consciously premeditating on sex and yet it is you know so the first thing is the real comfort that every person has around this and around the ability to say I want you and then maybe on occasion to be told no not today and to, and to not experience it as a profound narcissistic rejection but just simply the other person is not in the mood or that if they say no at first it means you have to try again and you know not always when you cook does the other one jump in and, and wants to eat sometimes they need to smell it first then they see that it is really nicely presented then they see that mm, they taste it from your own plate then they decide to take a little plate for themselves. Then they actually eat, and then they still tell you, "I wasn't hungry."
2: And when you say premeditative, do you help couples to negotiate times ahead of time together that they then stick to?
0: I don't do as much of that because I think that follows to me the, the you know the setting of a time. Yes, I do talk about you know creating a sacred time versus the a time to be versus a time to do. I can talk, but. More importantly, what I ask is, what does sex mean for you? Sex isn't just something you do. It's a place you go. Where do you go in sex? People have rarely thought of it like this. Where do you go? What part of you do you want to connect with? Is it a place for tenderness? Is it a place for connection? Is it a place to be naughty? Is it a place to finally not to have to be a responsible citizen? Is it a place to suddenly feel still young and beautiful when you're no longer? What? Is it a place to, to, for transgression? Is it a place for power? Is it a place for surrender? Where do you go? What are the parts of you that you like to connect with? Are you feeling that you need to be in your body? What are the senses that you most experience sex with? Is it more tactile? Is it more auditory? Is it more smell? How do you enter into that realm? Do you, do you want a conversation? Is it part of a dialogue? Or do you actually enjoy the fact that you can completely get lost? And I go at length with that. And does your partner know? that about you what role it plays for you and where do you go in it and what do you like to express is it a moment when you finally want to do absolutely nothing I don't want to take any responsibility I don't want to make any decision you do me and do you realize that when the two of you have a you do me that may be slightly problematic because that makes two people (laughs) who would like the other person to take care of them are you flexible can you alternate and then how do you let each other know? This is what I would like to do. What's your code? How do you signal each other? All animals signal each other. What's your signaling ritual? And don't tell me it's, shall we? You know, <laughs> it's like, seriously? You know, let's do can, it. Let's yeah. do it. It's like, I, I'm like, and you surprised? You yeah. can't even you, say the word sex. You know, yeah. and you surprised? Let's do it. You know, sh- it's like, do you want to? What? You know, so that's the, the, the level of discomfort. And I believe that if people gain a greater level of comfort and see it as, it's good. You know, so many people think sex is dirty, but save it for the one you love.
1: And it's amazing in our society, and you've talked about this, how in America we live in a hyper-sex society, you know, sexual images everywhere, and yet, you know, couples are coming into because your it's therapy. Because embarrassment yeah. and
0: obsession. It's mm. not a natural, healthy, comfortable re- response to sex. It's, it's, there is an, a nonstop interest, but it is an obsessive, prurient, and embarrassed. Mm. It's those three mm-hmm. are the, the dominant ones. It is remarkable how little couples talk about sex with each other. They talk with others, maybe, but not with the person they're having sex with. So I create sexual conversations in the room for the first time. I make them talk to each other in ways they never have. And the session itself becomes an erotic experience as in feeling alive. I'm not talking with them about why they don't have sex because talking about why you don't doesn't make you want. So I create... an experience between where they realize it's very very intimate when you create a sexual conversation you know um is there something you would like to be told when you make love is there something that you enjoy saying is there what about you is it that you would like him or her to know about you when you make love what kind of a lover are you would you be a lover to yourself? Ask any woman if she would make love to herself before you ask her if she's interested to make love to her male partner. Because if she doesn't want to make love to herself, she generally doesn't accept his advances either. Like, what do you see? that If I don't, <laughs> you know, then you probably don't have your glasses on. You must be blind. I don't like myself. And shame closes you in. It's hard to enjoy sex when you're thinking about what you don't like about yourself. Oh, God, it, it, it's impossible. It's impossible. Self-criticism and anxiety are the brakes. Yeah. You know, as, as Emily Nagosti talks about the brakes and the accelerators. Mm-hmm. If she said, you know, I feel fat, I feel this, and I'm like, you know... You're done. You cannot. You're in so your head. You're in your head, and you're in a negative headspace. Yeah. You could be in a good headspace. Head is super important. It's not a. It's the main organ of sex, but there is a way that you literally separate yourself from it, and you look at it, and it's like, make it end it, end it, and then you just lie there, and then if it's a male partner, and even a female partner for that matter, they will often feel like. I don't want to rape you. I don't want to force you. I don't want to just get pitied. I don't want to just be tolerated. This is and the thing about sex is that the same thing can be delightful and can be disgusting. It's the same thing. The same experience, you know, with with just a notch turns from something delicious to something unbearable. We live in an era of
2: constant distraction, noise, and disconnection, making it hard to feel centered and focused when it matters. At Lovelink, we're all about strengthening this connection, to ourselves and our partners. We're brought to you today by a platform that shares in this idea. It's called Non, spelled N-O-N, and it's a sound meditation app for the iPhone. What makes Non unique is that it isn't a collection of pre-recorded music, Instead, non-produces each sound note by note, making no two sessions ever alike. This lack of familiarity means you can approach each session unclouded by expectation, forever keeping your attention purely in the moment. Not only can this help us connect to ourselves, but also can be a shared experience with your partner. Set the timer, sit with your lover, and meditate, sharing the experience of mindfully focusing on one another. In the midst of our busy schedules, sometimes we forget to truly see the person we love right in front of us. Download NON in the iPhone app store
1: today. So you recently wrote a book, The State of Affairs, and um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the development of this book and how you became interested in the
0: topic of infidelity in particular. Okay. So... Mating in Captivity, which is the first book, and in a way looked at the dilemmas of desire inside relationships and how we reconcile these contradictory forces of security and adventure. The state of affairs looks at what happens when desire goes looking elsewhere. In a way, that is one way to understand infidelity. You talk about it as cheating, but it is actually, cheating is one piece it is, which is what it does to the other partner. For for the person who does it, I think transgression is a better word and a more neutral word because it includes what it does to the person who is acting and not only on the receiving end. And a a, a more holistic approach to infidelity which is what I tried to do was to work from a dual perspective what it does to you and what it means for me the impact and the motives the reason I chose infidelity is because I wrote a book about modern relationships not about affairs per se but I used infidelity as a lens into modern relationships because infidelity encompasses the entire human drama love rejection, abandonment, jealousy, possessiveness, betrayal, violation of trust, uh, vengeance, you name it. I mean, you have to go to the opera usually for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought there is no other crisis in a relationship that is so all-encompassing and through which I can then look at what does it take to have good relationships today and what are the things we grapple with in modern love. And the next reason I chose infidelity is because it's ubiquitous It's worldly, it has always existed, it is only changing because the numbers are closing down because women are able to leave their homes, with lesser consequences, at least in the West, than what they have endured throughout history. It is massively painful, and it is a subject that is taboo, and generally overly simplified, seen in black and white, in victim and perpetrator, and it doesn't help the people, neither the people who have been hurt by it, nor the children, nor the community. Affairs and infidelity is a systemic issue, and it is an intergenerational issue. It's not a story of two people.
1: Mm. So why do people cheat? There are a multitude of reasons, and I'm, I'm wondering, in your experience, uh, working with couples? What have you seen? Why do people stray? Why do, and, and also, we can talk about what is the definition of, of infidelity, infidelity to start, actually, because it can mean a one-night stand, it can mean a
0: relationship. So, in the past, infidelity, it was very clear. First of all, the definition applied primarily to women, um, and because men have practically had a license to cheat. I mean, this is a very important thing, that we not think of it as a gender-equal proposition, this subject. Um, and I believe in some way that we are talking about it a lot more today because women are doing the same. As long as men did it, we didn't call it infidelity. We called it men being men. Let's put power where it was. You know, it's, a, uh, it's less, less pretty. Um, it, it, there was a child. That child came nine months later, and often it didn't resemble you. And so you knew there had been an infidelity. But today, everywhere you look in the research, the papers end with, we need more research on the definition of infidelity. To ask people, have you had sex with somebody else in the last 12 months or since you've been married, doesn't give you much of anything. Plus, Clinton already changed that definition. So it's like, if you want to go for statistics, it goes from 30 to 70. You know, uh, it's 33 for the men, it's 20 for the women, it's 28 for the men. It's it's this long stretch of 40% differential between the top numbers and the low numbers, depending on what you ask. But what we do know is that the definition keeps on expanding. It's not just a love affair. It could be a, a tryst. It could be a hookup. It could be a one-night stand. But it all can also be watching porn or only watching porn if there is a live webcam on the other side or a massage with happy ending or reconnecting with your ex on Facebook or it goes on and on. So it sounds like it's very specific to the couple and what it is, they define. For the first time, it is subjective. Since you do not have the, the, the religious institution, at least in our corners, to really define it and to define this thing called adultery. It uh, it is very much a subjective matter, and it need, it it's, and what is the most interesting is that very few couples have actually ever discussed it. So everybody negotiates monogamy with themselves, and they create their own definitions of where they cross the line. Why people cheat, and all of this, by the way, is not to justify anything. I, I really wanted to understand this and to write something that is all-encompassing for the multiplicity of experiences, not to condone or to justify anything. The reasons that have to do with the relationships are known, and I didn't feel like I had much to add there. Loneliness, lack of communication, lack of intimacy, pervasive sexual rejection, personality issues, you name it. So, All the deficiency issues of what's missing in the relationship and the symptom of that, or what's missing in the person, I didn't think I have to add much. It didn't help me understand the millions of people. And millions of people can't be pathological. (laughs) So there must be something else. What is it in the power of transgression? Why do people make rules and then seek to trespass their, their own rules? And why do they do it at one point in their life after 20 years of being faithful? I didn't look at the chronic philanderers. I got them in the book too, but they're not interesting. Especially the narcissists. They they have a bunch of other issues. And amongst other things, they also cheat. It's like this is only one feature of their personality. (laughs) What interested me is these people who have been loyal, faithful partners for decades. And they one day cross a line they never thought they would cross. And they often actually are in a conflict between their values and their behavior. Why do they do this? at the risk of losing everything. This guy comes in this week, three children, and I know, one is going to identify with the mother, one is going to be the diplomat, and one basically doesn't talk to him. And he can't go home. He's about, He's got three kids that he adores who are not visiting him in his flat, and he won't go home. It's like something else in is in there that is much more deeper. And, And what he talks about, which is a a classic line, is it, it would be like dying. If I went back, I would die. Of course, it's not necessarily true, but the feeling is I felt alive. I discovered something about me, not, you know, for which I had another person, but it's not like I wanted another partner. I wanted another self. I wanted to reconnect with lost parts of myself. I wanted to experience that. Feeling, or I didn't know that I wanted it, but I, did, I stumbled upon that sense of aliveness. And the feeling is, if I let go of this, if I go back home, I'm going to go die. I'm, I'm going to die. And so you're dealing with loss. Either I lose my wife and my family, either I lose me. And you're dealing with grief, and you're dealing with the erotic as an antidote to death. So to me, that existential theme theme that you, can, that you see in multiple aspects becomes one of the very interesting reasons why people cheat. People don't so much want to leave that, the partner they're with. What they want to leave is themselves. And they need another partner to experience themselves differently. Here, I'm not a mother, I'm not a wife, I'm not a daughter-in-law, I'm not responsible for everybody. This is the first time I'm doing something for myself. This is the first time that I'm allowing myself once again to experience the woman behind the mother. This is the first time that I am with someone with whom I'm experiencing a depth of intimacy that I have never known to experience, maybe because one didn't know how to experience it in the context of family, and I have to be outside the family. This is, you know, it's these kinds of messages. It has very little to do with sex. The sex is a piece of it, but it's really, affairs are erotic plots.
2: And I think with the emphasis on eroticism is a really important point because they're not finding this through friendship. They're not finding this through the other that doesn't involve romance and sexuality. So there's something about sexuality and romance that ignites something inside of
0: them. Yes, yes, that's a very good point. It's like there is a sexuality involved but sometimes the sex is even just imagined because the other person is god knows on, on another continent and you ju- the, the act itself of the imagination and the longing and the yearning is a sexual without even having to do it it's the energy of sex the enchantment of sex more than the act of sex but yes it has to do with taking yourself to a place where you've never gone also affairs are you. Ut- utopian stories in the world of of an affair especially love affairs they are love stories and they are love stories that live secluded from the world of reality and in that world everything is possible we will meet we will cross the globe we will reunite together we our children will love each other people are talking nonsense sometimes Mm -hmm. you know because there is no obstacle it is a world of omnipotence and utopia in which every impossibility will be solved. It's very seductive. <laughs> it's extremely yeah. seductive. Yeah. And that, that's why mo- many times once it gets the daylight, the broad daylight, it doesn't work. Because once it confronts itself with reality, it, you, know, you know, she's never seen you with your four children you know, she's 25 years younger than you, and um, and she's only seen you alone when you are completely devoted to her. Try it again when she has to match herself with the other four kids and their schedules, and, you know, it's like that secrecy is what, it, it's, it's the way that <laughs> sometimes I, I liken it to when kids play under the blanket, you know, and in that in that imaginative universe, everything is possible, that's part of why when they've the pain of the partner, they can't believe what they've done. Because when they're in that thing, they're not busy thinking about what it's doing to They know it. They say it sometimes. I don't want to hurt my partner. I don't want to hurt my partner. But the, the enchantment has nothing to do with the hurting the partner. The enchantment has to do with what they are experiencing in a very selfish way for themselves.
1: So when people are in this enchantment, are they at all thinking about the outcome of all of this, the outcome of an affair, or they're just in... It depends
0: f- in what stage, because yeah. affairs can last years. So it depends in what stage. Sometimes I have to sit with the patient for two years mm-hmm. and wait till I, s- I know where it goes. You know, a, a, an affair is a romance story, and a romance story is a plot that moves over time. That's like a novel. What are the phases of the plot? Well, at first, it's it's... it's it's almost like a divine presence. Sometimes it's this, in, it is in this impossibility that has landed on you. That this world that has opened up, this world inside that has opened up, that you didn't, that either you haven't experienced in a long time or that you never knew existed. It's a, it's a meeting with yourself more than anything else, you know, mediated through another. But they don't say it like that. They say, "I met someone," and I say, "You met you," in a way that you didn't know you. And that's part of why it's so important is because if they're going to leave the affair, if they choose to come home, they need to know that that meeting with you can come back. It's living inside of you. Your fear is that if you let go of the person, the whole thing will disappear. Some of it will, but some of it, if you can harness it inside, it's now yours, you know. So um, the next phase is... um, all the, all the obstacles dissolve. You think, you know, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you'd know this is exactly what it needs to be. It is in the margin of my life. It is It is separate from everything else I'm experiencing. There's many different ways people organize this. But what's important in relation to the partner is it is a dissociative experience. There's no doubt. You, you know, sometimes you are, Constant thinking, I don't want to hurt if my partner knew, I don't want my children I, I can't believe I'm doing this, this is the last thing I ever imagined about myself you're, you're in that, but you're not experiencing it with full force because in order to be able to enter that universe, there is a wall that gets created, and that is that dissociative wall, and when people see the face of their partner crack in front of them when it comes out, and they, they just realize that they were the person who inflicted this on them, it is often unbearable to them Because what they experienced was that other side. It was what it meant for me. And now they have to deal with what it did to you. So I always say, affairs are about betrayal and violations of trust and love gone elsewhere and jealousy. But they are also about longing and yearning and loss.
2: And why is it so difficult for partners to share this before they seek relationships
0: outside to talk about this with their partner? So who pre- says they don't? This is a myth. This notion, you know, there's all these ideas. Uh, there's, there is... there uh, is. It, 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 I mean, the book had 200 more pages I could have put in, you know, uh, but there is not a word that is invented. I had 1,500 letters after the TED Talk. I've seen people in 20 countries for nine years. It's like... I began to get it, and I still don't think I have gone around the block on this subject. Every day I get stories written to me that I didn't even know the version of. I think that we have a bunch of assumptions. If you had told your partner that you wanted this, no. You told your partner many, many things... And often, I've seen partners who are not interested. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear your unhappiness. They don't want to hear your sexual loneliness. They don't want to hear lots of things. Or they don't take you seriously. Or they just say, I'm not interested anymore. Or they just have gained 80 pounds. Or they just say, if I never have sex for the rest of my life, it's fine by me. Or they just throw it in your face. Why don't you just go and fuck somebody else? You know, I wouldn't care. And then, when it happens, that person that has been extinguished sometimes for a decade... Suddenly, wakes up with a level of passion and voraciousness, you, you cannot believe it. You can't make it up. So that's the first thing. Then you have the people who, you know, as you say, it jolts them out of complacency and out of laziness and out of indifference and out of just sheer you know, forgetting each other. And suddenly they realize, oh my God, we have a lot to lose. I don't want to lose this. And they get into gear and they start to have conversations with the level of depth and honesty that they haven't had in years. And then other times, which is the most difficult idea for a lot of people in, the, in North America to, uh, to, to want to hear, is that affairs can balance a marriage. You know, I see, because we think of affair, we think about sensation and vulgarity and and selfishness and looseness. But when you have a whole group of people who live with partners who are no longer able, who are ill, who are aging prematurely, who are 20 years older and have early onset of all kinds of things, these people stay with their partner. They care. They are loyal. They take care of them. They visit them in the nursing home three times a week. They take care of them while they're lying in bed and they're having an affair. And that affair is allowing them to have the energy to stay alive, to take care of the partner. When you say it like that, it instantly becomes a justification. It is not, but it is an imperfect compromise for an imperfect life in which people say that part of my life I will outsource. But there is a whole world that we share that is not just about an intimacy. A couple isn't just a story of two people. A couple is a complex system in which 20 people are connected to, at least, and, 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 and nurture themselves from. And it's not because you have lost one dimension that you have to dissolve the whole system. But in North America, the, the dominant norm today is divorce. If you're unhappy enough to cheat, divorce. If you've been cheating... Divorce and of you been cheated on, divorce.
1: Why is it so threatening
0: in North America? Why are affairs so threatening in Because North marriages are seen as, as as a story of two people. And so the individual affront and the individual happiness is what determines. In the rest of the world, the compromise has always been made about infidelity by the courtesy of women most of the time rather than the dissolution of the entire family system with all the bonds unraveling with the children shuttling left and right and an understanding that sometimes lives are imperfect but the system is complex and meanwhile we have a terrible sexual fit or we have never had that kind of connection but we have raised four kids we have taken care of our ailing parents we have helped each other in economic downturns we have built homes together we have had a very good marriage and I say to these people when they come in and they say our whole marriage fell apart you know our whole marriage was a fraud our marriage is a failure on what basis look at what marriage your marriage has accomplished do you those are also tasks of a marriage in this dimension no, talking with him is never something that you did. L- feeling good when his hands touch you—no, it's never been your thing. You know, uh, wh- for all kinds of reasons. We could go in if we had time. It's very complex why su- why couples de-eroticize each other, but that doesn't mean the relationship isn't strong, robust, and and filled with other things, and. That is the first thing you say to them is, no, you didn't have a bad marriage. You actually have a strong relationship that has done a lot of things and there has been an affair. That understanding is more accepted in other parts of the world. It's not an all or nothing. If this happened, it's a failure. Because if you have everything at home, there should be no reason to go looking elsewhere. If you went looking elsewhere, obviously there's a hole. And we in other parts of the world don't necessarily think this way. We understand that there is a draw sometimes. We, and, and that if you choose not to do it, it's a choice not to do it. But the actual draw, the actual yearning for other things, that when you pick a partner, you pick a story. But there are other stories you could have lived.
2: So as a couple, how do you recover from an affair? How do you heal
0: by staying together or not in both cases okay because i think that um the first thing and that is for both cases i would say uh the best scenario for me and i'm doing um we're doing a webinar actually starting today <laughs> <laughs> nice. the 27 is today um it's called the three phases of recovery mm. uh there's hundreds of couples, hundreds of couples from the whole world that are joining this webinar. And, and I broke it down in the three phases. I think the first thing in phase one, which I call the crisis phase, is that the person who hurt the other needs to be able to own that. You have to be able to show remorse and guilt for hurting your partner. Even if you don't have the guilt for the affair itself, you may think that you've experienced one of the most important things in your life. But nevertheless, it was a breach and it's hurtful and you thought of you and not of us. That's the first. The phase one, the focus is on the person who's just, who's, whose life has just unraveled. And why unraveled? Because today we don't expect it should happen. I wait 10, 15 more years to get married or to commit myself to somebody. I choose you amongst thousand. You bet when I choose you, this isn't meant to happen. So this shattering of the grand ambition of love is a very major piece of the pain of infidelity today and the loss of identity. It's not who I thought I was. This isn't meant to happen to me. This is not my life. My whole, you know, that. The second thing is that you really need to be able to decide if you want to stay, that you're going to invest in the relationship. I don't believe that the the healing of the affair is that you're never going to do it again. You cannot do it again and hate being here every day. I want, and what most people say they want is, if you're going to stay, I want to know you want to stay and you want to be here with me. They want a reaffirmation of the love. They don't just want a surveillance system against more cheating. That's a piece of it. But but it is often obfuscating the real thing. The real thing people want to know is, do you still love me? And will you? And, and, and if you stay, I want to feel that. I don't even want to know that you're just staying for the family, for the kids, for the lifestyle. I need to know that I still matter because the whole point of the affair is that I didn't matter. You managed to push me aside and bring somebody else into a space that until now was reserved for us. The next thing is for the person who was hurt in phase two is to be able to show some interest in understanding why it happened. Not what you did. But why you did it? What did it mean for you? What were you looking there? You know, um, where do? We, what does it mean for us? Why didn't? Why couldn't you do this with us? You know, did you even try it? Because sometimes people do, as I said, and sometimes no, they literally went elsewhere right away. So you. You need the double perspective. I need to see that the person who was hurt can also say, talk to me about you. If it's only, only, only about them, it's not as good for the prognosis. And then the third thing is, what do we want to do with this? That's the vision phase. What do we want to do? You know, Every affair will redefine the relationship, and every relationship will determine what the legacy of the affair will be. What does it mean for us? Does it mean we want a new relationship together? Does it, need we, does it mean we, we realize that this is our end? Does it mean we just want to go back to stability and we don't want to have to talk about it ever again? You know, does it mean that you have lost any quota for an ounce of freedom for the rest of your life? Because from now on, I dictate everything. Does it mean that we re- reassess the va- like yesterday? The the this couple. You know, she kept saying, but we had a good marriage. But we had a. And I said to her, you know, maybe this is you holding the candle. And every time you say we were good, we were good. He can say no, but there was so much missing. You're polarizing. You know, what what happened here is that he went for more. That doesn't mean you don't want more. But you didn't allow yourself to want more in the relationship because you have always been the stabilizing force. He went to work, he was the creative, you were the, you know. Maybe this is your chance to say, I want more too. This is not the marriage I'm going back to. If you want to stay with me, we start from scratch. And that's when they love this line that I once came up with, but it gives so much hope to people that many of us today in the West are going to have two or three committed relationships or marriages. We, we, We know that. And some of us will do it with the same person. So your first marriage is over. Do you want to have another one with each other? I think that's
1: such a helpful idea for people. It's um, so, so hopeful. They write yeah. to me,
0: we would like to see if we can have a second marriage with each other. Yeah. It's like the line that becomes the lifeline. Right? And it's that the
2: narrative st- of the affair isn't the failure of your, of your relationship, it's an opportunity to start a new one.
0: You know, Hopefully can you turn this crisis into an opportunity? Can you go from despair to repair? And then it becomes a crisis, like many other crises that people have experienced. Can you use it and harness it to, to really build something better and stronger? And for some reason, people are willing to accept that for all kinds of crises, But when it comes to the crisis of infidelity, they refuse to apply that same concept.
1: So before you go, Esther, we're curious to hear what you're working on now and what are the things you're interested in and pursuing? Men. 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 Oh, nice. <laughs> Tell us more.
0: I uh, I said three years ago, even while I was still writing and I was already, you know, I was. when I write, it's generally when I'm done with the topic because it means that I now know what I want to say. But I did write for two and a half years and I, I said then I want to do something about men because... And nobody was too interested. But now after Me Too, or not after, but in Me Too, everybody wants to uh, to address men. And because what I said is the last 50 years, women have had an opportunity to rethink their identity and their life, both domestically and professionally. And we need men to be able to do the same thing. And... Um, if the 20th century was the century where women made the changes, I believe that the 21st century will be the one where the men adapt to the changes that the women have made. Mm -hmm. And the lives of women will not change until the men come along. So I've been on this for a while, and now I finally am getting the support, the means, the invitations. I'm doing six talks about men. I'm doing large conversations about Me Too. Um, And it's like, wow, that's it. It's happening.
2: You know, and this is a force I think that will really change our world if you can if you can foster emotional intelligence, emotional expression in men and help them because we don't do a good job doing that I think that that really is powerful, but for our I will world.
0: start with mothers I will start with mothers and fathers too. you know everything is multifactorial. we raise boys, I have raised two boys, you know and uh um and i i i need to know that I don't collude with a system that says, you know, the socialization of boys involves that dismantlement of their emotionality, you know, so that they can become fearless, competitive, autonomous, self-reliant, disconnected creatures, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, so it goes through parenthood and the raising of young boys. It goes in our society and the the whole set of norms around work and power. You know, Terry Reel has a very powerful line that I, I often say. Patriarchy doesn't just hurt women, right? It's is, is not an original idea. But what he says is that under patriarchy, you can either be powerful or connected, but not both. Mm-hmm. If women want to be connected and powerful today, men need to be able to be powerful and connected today. And when we do that then we really create more more wholeness and we kind of break down that whole binary you know of one is in charge of performance and achievement and power in the public sphere and the whole thing and the other one is the domestic and the relational and these such old ideas by now you feel like are we still there you know and then we can have more true equality between men and women It's it's the only there is no equality as long as Power and connection are dissociated. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you. This My is an pleasure. honor to have you. <laughs> <Yes. Street. sighs>
1: Hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening. We also want to thank Point in Passing for their original music and website design. Be sure to subscribe to Lovelink on iTunes and leave us a review. And check out our upcoming summer workshops for singles and couples on lovelink.co. See you next time.